My name is Ezra. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be coming and sharing with you again from the book of 1 Peter. And, uh, and in many ways, uh, we're, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, this is an opportunity, um, kind of a rare opportunity to really, uh, it's almost a part two to the sermon that I preached last week. And, uh, and, and the concept that we began to unpack last week is so kind of profound. And if you really, if you really settle into it and you think about it, uh, it has such deep implications that I'm really glad that I get kind of a second chance to take another swing at it. And uh, so I want to do a little bit of uh, extra time setting up the context of what we're talking about today because the context is so important. If you miss the context, it would be easy to be offended by this passage. It would be easy to take this passage and to abuse it or use it out of context or use it in a way that it wasn't meant to be used and to completely miss the mark of what Peter's trying to communicate here. Uh, but within the context in which it's delivered, it's just an incredibly powerful word for us. And really what it is, it's an opportunity for us to, to look at the gospel through a different lens. And, uh, and it's one that we don't often look at. And so when we think about the gospel, we think about the account of the sinless Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, coming to earth and living a perfect and sinless life, the life that we could never live, and dying on the cross in the death that we deserved so that we could receive forgiveness and we could receive salvation and we could spend eternity with him, right? And so it's, it's, it's the story in some ways of the perfect one who came down and died for his imperfect creation. Uh, but what we're looking at Last week, and what we're continuing this week, is, is looking at the gospel from another angle that says it is that, yes, it is that, but it's also the story of the rightful king and creator of the universe who didn't have to submit to anyone who came for the sake of a rebellious people and willingly submitted for those that were unwilling to submit. Um, and I think this is one of the most amazing things about the characteristic of, of Jesus, that he was the rightful king, and yet he submitted himself willingly in order to save us, the ones who were unwilling to submit, right? And so, so what we're dealing with here is this idea of the rebel heart. Now, all of us are, are marked by this rebellious nature, that, that we want to rebel, and we talked about this last week, uh, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? What was Adam and Eve's primary sin? Was that God said, hey, I, I made this garden for you. It's amazing. There's good work for you to do. There's good fruit for you to eat. You can eat from any of the trees, but there's one thing, just one thing <laughs> that you can't do. You cannot eat the fruit of this tree. And what did Adam and Eve do? They ate the fruit of that tree, right? They, they rebelled. And when you look throughout the Bible at, at so many of the broken stories they have to do with rebellion. Let's take a moment and think about uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. How many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, right? It's a very familiar parable. Jesus tells this story about a rebellious son, right? There's a son that goes to his father and says, hey, I don't want to live under your authority anymore. I don't want to live in submission to you anymore. I basically wish that you were dead. I wish I could get my inheritance today. Like the best thing that would happen would be if you would die so I could get my stuff right now. Um, so would you be willing to pretend like that happened and just give me my inheritance today? And the father says, okay, I'll give you your inheritance. And so he goes off, and he wastes it. He spends it all on, on wild living, and he comes to a place in a pigsty where he realizes, man, my life would be better if I was my father's servant. <laughs> I tried the path of rebellion 
I tried the path of being my own God and my own Savior, and it didn't work. It was horrible. It was a train wreck. And it would actually be better than living in so-called freedom of, of just doing whatever I want to do. What would be better is if I went back and I served my father. And so he made this plan to go back and ask his father if he could come back, not as a son, but as a servant. Man, there's some real depth there of what it looks like for each one of us when we come to the point where we realize, hey, I tried it my own way. I tried rebellion. I tried self-salvation. That freedom doesn't bring anything but brokenness. It's better to willingly choose to live in full submission and servanthood to the Father. And so the Son goes back, and the Father, instead of condemning him, he runs out with open arms, and he grabs him, and he says, you are my son. Come back. You're not my, you're not my servant. You are my son. But there's a second part of the story, right? There's an older brother who never outwardly rebelled, uh, who, never, who never disobeyed, but yet now this son comes into rebellion because the father comes to him and he says, son, come into the party. Let's celebrate with your brother. He's back. And the older brother, now it's his turn to rebel. And he says, no, father, I'm not going into that party. I'm not going to do what you told me to do. I've been obeying you this whole time. I never did anything wrong. He went out and wasted all your money, and now you're just going to receive him back, and yet I, I never even got a goat to celebrate with my friends. And so his heart was revealed. He didn't really want the father either. He didn't enjoy submission to the father. He was using obedience, outward obedience, as a tool to get the desires of his heart. And so both the younger brother and the older brother had rebellious hearts. But the younger brother's rebellious heart was healed when he realized it would be better to be a servant of the father. The, the older brother, we don't know. Jesus intentionally leaves the story open-ended to kind of say, hey, what are you going to do with your rebel heart? What are you going to do? And so there's story after story after story in the Bible that have that same sort of theme introduced into them. And so the, the big, this ties into the biggest questions of life. of What is our purpose here on earth? Why are we here? Right? What we see biblically, that, that a big part of it is through, through the brokenness of the world and our own sinful hearts, we need to come to a place where we realize who God is, we realize that we need him, and then we go through the process of becoming more and more like him. He uses trials and difficulties and challenges and opportunities in our life to shape us into the people that he wants to be, us to be and to spend eternity with. And so a big part of that is learning how to let go of this rebel heart. And so that's what we began to see last week in the passage where it says, uh, it says, hey, be subject to every earthly authority. You know those, those emperors and those governors that want to take you and they want to drag you out and feed you to the lions and, and burn you at the stake? Uh, as a way of learning how to get rid of your rebel heart, I want you to submit to them. He says, if you're a servant or a slave with an unjust master who beats you unjustly for the sake of getting rid of your rebel heart, I want you to willingly submit to them. And it might be torturous, literally, here on earth, but your heavenly Father sees everything, and he will reward you greatly in heaven for your willingness to let go of your rebel heart. Now, man, this is hard for us, right? As Americans, we are rebels by nature. <laughs> we, we, just, uh, we, we celebrate rebellion. Um, we like the stories in the Bible where people rebel, Right? <laughs> Um, you might think of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Like the, 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 the king said, bow down, and they said, we will not bow down. You can throw us in the fiery furnace. We don't care. And we're like, yeah, rebel, right? But, but the reality is this, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not 
rebels against the king. They were a part of the king's court. They were obedient to him. They served him well. He valued them greatly. They were not just subversive for the sake of, uh, of just trying to rage against the authorities. They said, Lord, king, we will follow you in anything that you command us to do that is good, but if you command us to disobey God, that's our higher allegiance. We won't disobey him. And so even that which appears to be a story of rebellion is not, in fact, it's a story of they were willing to submit except when the king called them to do something that God did not call them to do. And so we looked at this last week that, uh, that we're called, uh, it says that you're free. You've been given freedom, but don't use your freedom as an excuse to do what is wrong. Rather, live as, uh, it says, uh, verse 16, 216, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so we talked about this, that, that you have the freedom, the, the one freedom you have in life is to choose what master you will serve. Like the younger son, you can say, hey, I'm going to serve no master. I'm going to serve myself. Well, really, you've just chosen to make your own passions and desires your master. And the younger son, in the prodigal son story, found out where that leads, right? <laughs> to brokenness, uh, to no friends, to, 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 uh, to nothing of lasting value. And he came to understand that the greatest value that he had was to choose to be a servant of his father. And, and we're all on that same path. And so he encourages, use your freedom to choose to follow God. Live as people who are free. Now, why, do, why, why am I spending so much time setting this up? Because I need you to understand that's the context in which this teaching comes today. And so today we're going to look at, um, we looked at last time at like serving the, the ruling authorities. We looked at the worst case scenario of even if you're a servant or a slave serving an unjust master that you should still be willing. And now it's going to look at the most commonplace where this is really difficult, and that is in a marriage relationship. It says going from the extreme of like the very unusual but extremely difficult to something that, that a large number of people wrestle in. The place where we struggle with rebellion the most for many of us is in the home. It's within a marriage relationship. It's within our families. And so if we understand that this is not just a discussion about roles and relationships, but ultimately this is a discussion about rebellion and our tendency towards rebellion, it, it frames it in a different kind of way, right? And so I'll have him bring the, the passage up here on the screen, and let's begin to look at what, what Peter has to say in this context. And so he begins by saying, likewise. Now, if he says likewise, that's a clue that this is not just coming in out of nowhere, right? It says, hey, in the same manner of what you just read, in the same manner of what was just, uh, was just described to you by me in this letter about our rebellious heart and our need to learn how to submit uh, as, as a way to honor God, even to unjust rulers and authorities, that when we learn to submit to them, that it's a way of honoring God, in that same manner, it says, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Man, now that's a hard word, right? <laughs> right? And in and of itself, if we just threw those two verses out there, completely devoid of context, you'd be like, well, I can't do that. That doesn't make sense. That's not even fair. But if you remember what we just read, he said, hey, if you live in a government where the emperor is rounding Christians up and taking them and feeding them to lions, and you live in a, in a, in a place where there are unjust 
and cruel masters who are treating their servants poorly and beating them unjustly. And if we're called to obey in those things, then in a marriage relationship where a husband may not be a believer and may not be a guy who's worthy of honor, that wives are called to, to submit to him as a way of honoring Jesus. Man, that's a, that, that, that's a tough word, but it's one that we have to, to work into our heart. And so what you see is that, um, as we talked about last week, so much of this boils down to the simple concept that we teach kindergartners, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> you see two kids fighting, and you say, what happened? Well, he took my, my toy. Okay, well, then what happened? Well, then I punched him. Okay, well, then what happened? Well, then he bit me. Okay, well, then what happened? Right? Everybody's wrong in that scenario. Somebody did something wrong first, but then it's sin upon sin upon sin, and there's nobody who's left in the right. And so as a wife, if you look at it and you say, hey, look, I know that I'm called to submit to my husband, but you don't understand you don't understand how difficult he is to submit. You don't, so I kind of have to needle him, and I kind of have to rebel against his authority, and, and he told me not to do that, but, but I kind of have to let him know that I'm, I'm my own boss, right? Now, there's context here, right? It doesn't say submit to your husband if he calls you to do something that would violate what God calls you to do. In fact, you're submitting to the husband as, as a way of submitting to and respecting God as the ultimate authority, and so if he calls you to do something that is, that is dishonoring to God, it's your responsibility and your duty to say, hey, I, I love you and I respect your position in, in our marriage, but I cannot do that because my highest authority is to God. The same way that the, uh, the, the, the Roman citizens and the, and the Jews and the Gentiles, those that believed in Christ that came together, they came and said to the ruling authorities, hey, we want to be good citizens. We want to be productive members of society. We want to do all the good things. But if you tell us to stop worshiping Jesus, we cannot do that. And we'll have to accept the penalty, right? Now, it's interesting because in this time, for a, for a wife to have a different religious belief than her husband was incredibly controversial. It was just expected that the wife would just believe whatever. Hey, husband, you're into this? Okay, that's what I'm into too, right? It's, it was just assumed that that would be the case. And so, in some ways, Peter is calling them to subversive action, right? He's, he's saying like, hey, listen, you're honoring God, and that's right. Don't stop doing that. Even though culture would tell you that you're, you're in the wrong, don't turn away from this conviction to follow God. But don't let them have the excuse of saying, well, she's just rebellious. She's just disobedient. She just does whatever she wants, right? In every way, you should honor your husband unless he's calling you to violate what God is calling you to do. Now, it continues on into... Um, uh, in, into some specifics of, of what that looks like, right? And so in verse 3, it says this. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now again here, this is a passage that can easily be taken to this unrealistic, legalistic 
extreme, right? And let me show you what that looks like when that happens, right? Somebody grabs this, this passage and they say, okay, um, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair. Okay, braiding of hair is bad. If any women in here have braided hair, I want you to take the braids out, right? Because braids are wrong, right? And, uh, and, and putting on of gold jewelry. If you have gold jewelry, I need you to take the gold jewelry off. Gold jewelry is bad. Silver, you're okay. Platinum's good. The gold has got to go because gold is bad, okay? What else does it say? Uh, or the clothing that you wear. Ladies, clothing's got to go, right? Like, so if you get legalistic with it, it doesn't make sense. He's not saying that braided hair is bad. He's not saying that gold jewelry is bad. He's not saying that clothing is bad, clearly, right? What he's saying is, what is it that makes you beautiful? Is it your makeup is it the way that you put yourself together? Is it the way that you present yourself on Facebook? Is it the perfectly angled and crafted uh, storyline that you're creating of your life on Instagram that makes you, uh, is that what you place your ultimate deepest value in? Is what other people think of you, uh, the, the public perception that you're creating, is that what makes you beautiful? Because if it is, then you're giving a lot of power away to other people. Because if you post the picture of what you think is like just the beautiful, perfect uh, picture of you, the perfect selfie, the perfect picture of your, your perfectly decorated room, whatever it is, and people make mean comments about it, or people don't like it, or people don't view it, and suddenly your self-worth goes, then you've, you've let your adorning be external. You said, hey, what makes me beautiful is, is what other people think about me, the way that I publicly present myself. And Peter says, don't let that be what makes you beautiful. What makes you beautiful is the, the adorning of your heart, your inner person, who you are on the inside. And we get this, right? Like our uh, beauty fades. What, what society values as beauty ultimately fades for every one of us. But I can tell you that you could, you could go to a retirement community around here and you could find um, some 90 and hundred-year-old women that are beautiful because they have a beautiful spirit, right? That inner beauty never fades. There's some people that just when you spend time with them, you're like, wow, that was like drinking a cool glass of water. That, spending time with that person, there's just something, there's a quietness, there's a stillness about them. And, and when it says quiet and, 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 and uh, a quiet spirit and a gentle spirit, it doesn't mean that women should, should be seen and not heard. That's not what it's saying, right? That's an abuse. What it, what it says is that, that they should be really falling into the image of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. He said, come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The same phraseology that it says, hey, if you want to be beautiful, be beautiful the way Jesus was beautiful. Jesus was gentle and lowly in heart. And he says, and you will find rest for your souls. The pursuit of, of, of external validation of your beauty through social media or through, through public interaction does not bring rest to your soul. It's, it's unrest, right? It, it creates discord. Because you can always find somebody out there who seems to have it together more than you. They got their makeup is a little bit more on point. Their wardrobe is a little more impressive. Their home always looks a little cleaner than yours. Their kids are more perfect than yours, right? And so you always feel unrest. You feel like you're not quite good enough. You're not quite measuring up. But, but Jesus says that, 
that, that if you model me, if you have uh, a gentle heart, that nobody can take that beauty away from you. That's a lasting beauty. And that's the same sort of beauty that we saw in, in these, uh, these heroic women that we see in the Bible. When you think about Sarah and Abraham, Abraham was not always the greatest husband, right? He was not the easiest guy to follow. At one point, he came to her and he said, Hey, Sarah, uh, I had a conversation with God, and he's calling us to leave what we know and what's familiar and just to go to him to a land that he's going to show us. And she said, Okay, I'll go. I believe in you. I'm going to follow you. At one point, they were sojourning in a foreign country, and, and the king was interested in her. And instead of Abraham saying, hey, now this is my wife, I'm sorry, he said, yeah, that's my sister. Uh, sure, if you want to take her, go ahead. And so he took her into his, his household and intended to make her his wife. And God actually intervened and said, no, no, that's, that's a married woman. And so he, the king came back to Abraham and he was like, why did you do that? Why didn't you tell me that was your wife? Why, why would you say that was your sister? Abraham was not always an easy guy to follow. And yet Sarah stuck with him. She honored him. She loved him well. And it says that we would do well, uh, women that we would do well. Now, let me point out here real quick before um, I recognize that there are many single people that are here with us today. And so uh, it'd be easy to maybe kind of dismiss this message and say, okay, well, all right, message for married people, got it. I'll, I'll check back in next week, right? But, um, but a few things I would say about this. Number one, if you're someone who's single but aspires to be married, what a clear picture this is of, of the kind of spouse that you should be pursuing and the way that you should behave, be behaving as you're pursuing that spouse, how, how you want to position yourself, what, what kind of marriage you want to aim for. And if God has, has called you to a season or a lifetime of singleness, if you feel like that that's the calling that he's placed on you, in some ways, I know that it's easy to look at married people and kind of say like, oh, I wish I had what they had. I wish I had that companionship. I wish I had that relationship. I wish I had all those good things. There's a very realistic way that you can look at this and say like, okay, there, there's some good things, but there's also a really high call to submission, and there's, there's a lot that you give up in entering into a marriage. And so if God has called you to singleness, recognize the incredible freedom that he's given you, that, that it's, it's, it's in some ways a lot easier to serve God as a single person than it is in a marriage relationship, because now you're trying to together serve God. And so if you're here and you're single today, I would encourage you that there's, there's a word for you in here as well. Now, the, the husbands are not excluded from this, and, and some have noticed that their section is much shorter. Uh, <laughs> It might be because they can only handle one or two ideas at a time. Right? <laughs> in some sense, uh, and I acknowledge this, right, that the, the, the wife in a marriage has a more difficult job because she's called directly to submit to a very imperfect and broken earthly authority. And that, that's a hard calling. And so, so Peter has to round it out and say, hey, like, make yourself inwardly beautiful. And oh, by the way, if you live in this way, even if your husband doesn't believe, if he continues to watch how you live and watch your example, that he may come to faith just by watching you, without you saying a word, without you nagging him, without you undercutting him, without you trying to subvert his authority, but just by living such a beautiful, honorable life, the person who's closest to you is, is, at some point may look at it and say, man, I want to I be like that. But again, if you, if you allow two wrongs to make a right, if, if the husband has set the bar down here and then the wife's like, okay, well, then I can come in under the bar, then you miss an incredible opportunity to witness to your husband.
And so your pursuit of, of holiness and perfection is, uh, is, is meant to honor Jesus and it's meant to serve your husband. But husbands, look what it says. It says, likewise, husbands, likewise, the same call that was put on the wife is put on you. It just looks a little bit different. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, if you're somebody who's prone to be offended, you're going to be offended by that term weaker vessel, right? You're going to see that and you're like, ah, I hate that verse, right? That's, um, man, I just, uh, just a little over a month ago, I saw my wife give birth to our fourth child, right? Doing a physical thing that I don't think I would be capable of doing, right? So when I think of my wife, I do not think of someone who is weak in any, in any definition of the term. She has incredible strength. She has a stronger moral compass than I do. She has a, a commitment and a tenacity. So my wife is incredibly strong. I don't, I don't think of weak. But here's the reality. If we're laying in bed in the middle of the night and we hear the sound of breaking glass downstairs, I'm not going to look at her and say, hey, Trina, go check it out. <laughs> I'll huddle up here with the kids. You go find out what that was, right? Right, uh, uh, like a man who would do that, you got a question, right? That there's a reality, that there is a, a call on a man to protect his family, to take care of. And, uh, and man, it, it's this, this crazy thing. Um, I don't know how much time I have to go into this, right? But this is a whole can of worms that, that I will gladly open, right? But in the Bible... There is, uh, there is equality of, of man and woman, that, that man and woman were created in the image of God. And it says right in here that you should do this. You should pursue her in an understanding way because she is an heir with you of the grace of life, that we are heirs, we are God's children, that we are of equal worth and value and capacity. But being men and women uh, carries with it distinct and unique roles, uh, that, that God has given to us. I use this example all the time, right? God has given my wife the role of bearing children. I might want that role. It's not my role to take on, right? And so as we live in a society that is now beginning to say like, hey, gender isn't really, that's, that's, that's a choice that you make. That's a sliding scale. It's, it's just a reflection of that rebel heart that we've been talking about, Right? It's a reflection of this ultimate rebellion that's going to say, even down to the fact of whether I am a man or a woman is going to be something that I'm going to choose. God is not going to decide that for me. It's rebellion. And so we have to, as Christians in this culture, we've got to embrace, not in a mean-spirited way, not in a condemning, but we've got to speak the truth in love and say, hey, listen, we love each other enough to acknowledge that there is a difference, there's a the created difference between men and women. They're of equal worth and value and esteem, we're fellow heirs of the grace of God. Jesus died for us on the cross. He loves us. We have this capacity to change the world in the image of Jesus. Uh, but, but he's laid out some different ways for us to do it based on our gender. And, and we've got to embrace that. Uh, within the home, think about this. There's, uh, in, in a typical nuclear family, right, there's a, there's, a, there's a husband, there's a wife, there's a child. Each are, are valuable, equal members of the family with unique roles and responsibilities. It doesn't make one better than the other. It doesn't make one lesser. 
right? The, the, the husband is called to lead courageously, to protect the family. Guys, if you're in here, the buck stops with you. And, and as soon as you embrace the fact that the buck stops with you, man, you just made life a lot easier on your wife and your kids. When they know that you're not going to pass off authority, that you're not going to look to somebody else, that you're not going to blame shift. Oh, it's my kid's fault. It's my wife's fault. Ultimately, you own responsibility. And the more that you do that, the more that you bless your family, right? So, so there's the husband. There's the wife who is called to honor her husband, to make it easy for him to lead the family, to come along with, with ideas and to partner with him in, in leading the family forward, but ultimately to look to him and say like, hey, God has put you in a unique position and I honor that position. And I want to do everything I can to, to make it a joy to lead our family. And then for the children, there's a call to honor your father and mother. Now, you might look at that and say, well, okay, that's a hierarchy. That makes the, the, the husband more valuable. But let me ask you this. If there's a scenario in which the family is there and somebody's going to lose their life, isn't it the father who would be willing to give his life to save his wife and his children? So in essence, he values them more greatly than he values his own life. It's the same way in the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Equal God, and yet distinct and unique in their, in, their, in their characteristics and their roles. That the Father sends the Son into the earth. The Son willingly submits to the Father and comes. If you look at what Jesus said all the way, we just went through uh, the book of John, right? How many times did Jesus say, I only do what God tells me. I, I, I'm pursuing my Father. I only do what my Father says. I just want to bring glory to the Father. Everything I do is for the Father. And because he honors the Father, the Father honors him. And then he says, hey, it's better that I go up to the Father because then I can, we can send the Holy Spirit to dwell with you and, and the Holy Spirit will come and abide with you. So there's unique roles. There's a willing submission in equality in the Trinity. And that's, and that's, that's mirrored in our home in some ways, very imperfectly, <laughs> right? But, the, but, but there's a mirror of that. And so embracing the roles and embracing love and submission and care for one another is, is a reflection. That's something God wants us to learn. That's part of why he's got us here. He wants us to learn this so that when we go and spend eternity with him in heaven, we get it. And so the more that you embrace that here on earth, the more that, that you're growing closer to him. Look at what it says. It says, uh, live with your wives in an understanding way. Husbands, it's your job to try and understand your wife. Right? You might say, good luck, right? <laughs> but that's a difficult task. And yet that's our goal. To not prove yourself right. To not say, hey, it's my way or the highway. Do it because I said so. It's to say, hey, I, I, I feel like God's leading us this way. I feel like this is what he's calling us to do. And yet I feel, I feel tension from you. I feel like you're pushing against this. Help me understand. Why is, it, why is this difficult? What, how, can I, how can I make this something that you embrace and, and, and that we can do together in joy? Right? That's... Man, that's a significant task, but that's, that's what we're called to do. And ultimately what it says is this. It says that we need to do this so that our prayers won't be hindered. If your relationship in, home, in the home is, is, is broken, is messed up, it's going to have an impact on your spiritual relationship with God. And here's a reality for us as a church, right? Like we come in, we're stronger as a church when our families are stronger. We can come on and put on a good face, we can, we can smile and shake everybody's hand. We can serve parking cars or, or teaching kids and stuff. But if we go home and our marriage is just a total train wreck and, and it's just full of brokenness, um, man, that's, that's not true spiritual health. 
Our church is stronger as our families are stronger. And so the, the primary thing, the first thing that we have to do is go home and say, all right, how do I live more in line with what Jesus is calling me to do? Wives, how do you root for your husband to succeed? How do you say, man, I really want you to be a great leader? And so that means I've got some expectations for you. <laughs> There's some things I think that need to happen. I think that God is calling you, and I'm going to hold you accountable because he's put me into your life as an accountability partner. But I'm not doing this to cut you down. I'm doing this to build you up. I want you to be a great leader. Husbands, you're looking at your wife and saying, I want to understand you. I want to honor you. Man, if you're aiming at that target, you're going to have a pretty good marriage. If you're here today and, uh, and your husband or your wife is not a believer and they're not here with you and you're, and you're wrestling with this because you're like, man, I, how does this apply to me? I, I think the biblical call here is, is to live the most beautiful, attractive, obedient Christian life that you can possibly live and prayerfully ask God to change your spouse's heart. And, and don't carry that burden on yourself, but, but, but hand it off to Jesus and say, I, I give it to you. Daily, I give it to you, right? And I know it's hard. I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy. But that's what we're called to do. In the trial, to learn what it means to let go of our rebellion, to learn what it means to let go of our, our desire to, to fight and not submit, and use it as an opportunity to grow closer to Jesus and see what he does in that process.